0: We're having a little fun with this topic on volatility, uh, and with the volatile theme. Um, but right at the front end of this series, we've got to kind of make the point that this is about a heavy topic, that our culture has become more and more volatile in, in the recent past. One of the things that I kind of mourn is that in my lifetime, uh, the stability in our culture has just sort of gone away. You know, one of the books out there that's pretty uh, a pretty wonderful read is The Greatest Generation that talks about um, the wonderful um, men and women that sort of made it through the World War II era and then sort of rebuilt the nation in a very difficult time coming out of the, the end of World War II. And what amazes me is, even though they were in the middle of a very difficult time, there was immense stability, personal stability, communities were finding their footing, there was a stability even in the culture. And we're not in that same kind of crisis right now, and yet for some reason, our nation seems more volatile than ever. Maybe it's just because we're more aware of it through news and social media and so forth, but I'm mourning the fact that the stability that we need so much, that we need to pass on to our kids is not really there. So we're going to talk today about volatility, we're going to sort of start out there, Um, and we'll be spending four weeks on this, and before we're done, we're going to talk about a lot of practical topics, like how to deal with volatile people, but today we're going to start with looking inside, and looking at the volatility within ourselves, and asking where does it come from, and what can we do about it? Well, I'm always looking for stories and illustrations uh, for the topic that I'm gonna be speaking on on a weekend, and so I knew I was gonna be uh, talking about volatility, so I mentioned to my wife, I'm looking for you know stories, and she said, oh, you have to see this one. She said it was, it was all over the internet for quite a while, and it was going viral on social media, and she pulls it up and she shows it to me. <clears throat> I kind of look over to her screen, and all I see on this video is this lady who's gone up to an SUV that has an open window, and she's punching the person inside that window. And I thought, well, there's got to be a story here, right? So I look up the news story, and I'm reading what happened. So this is my best understanding of, of what happened. You've got this young lady who's learning how to drive and her mom is helping her, you know, so that, you know how it is, you're getting your driver's, you're getting your learner's permit, you have to get all your hours logged and stuff. So mom's sitting in the passenger seat and daughter's kind of new to all of this. And you know how student drivers are, they try their best, but sometimes they make mistakes. I don't know what this student driver did that ticked off somebody else, but they did something because this other lady in this SUV cut her off in anger. And in the process of cutting her off, the lady in the SUV who was drinking something from a cup threw her cup out her window and made really, really great accuracy. It made it through the window of the other person's car and into the mom's lap who's trying to help her daughter learn how to drive. Well, this didn't make the mom real happy, you know. And what was really interesting was a minute later, they both end up next to each other at a red light. You know this is Murphy's Law. That's what's going to happen, right? You think you're going to drive off and never see them again. Next thing you know, you're right there at a red light with them. So the mom thinks that this would be a good time to maybe give the other lady an etiquette lesson. I don't know, maybe she thought God was telling her she needed to go and and have a word of exhortation with this lady who threw a cup at her. So she gets out of her car, and she goes over there, and and, and according to what I read, the first thing that she does, rather than try to talk to this lady in the SUV, she just throws a punch at her. Well, the lady in the SUV has the benefit of height, and so rather than get punched out, she grabs this lady who's trying to, you know, trying to hit her, she grabs this lady's hair and just starts yanking, like, through the window. So this lady who thought she was gonna go punch this other person, now she's kind of going through the window like this because the lady's like yanking her like this. So now the daughter sees that her mom's hair is being yanked and she doesn't like that. So she gets out of the car, right? This must have been a really long red light. She gets out of the car, she comes over and she kicks the lady's SUV. I don't know what that was supposed to do. And now she starts wailing on this lady with, with her mom. Now, when we think about volatility, this really stands out to me. Here's a mom and a daughter, they were just gonna go out before dinner and get a couple driving, you know, get get a driving hour in or two, put it on the log. Next thing you know, they are in the Lynchburg Police Department getting their photos taken, and by the way, those photos made it to the Lynchburg newspaper the next day, local mom and daughter charged with assault and battery, and I'm so not kidding, right? And now the video's gone viral, and that mom and that daughter have become part of the collective awareness of what it looks like when somebody absolutely loses it. Because somebody had a phone out and was videotaping the whole thing. Now this whole thing doesn't make sense to me either. I'm not gonna go stop this, I'm not gonna go help, I'm just gonna get this on video. You will not believe how many likes I'm gonna get on this, you know? Another story that I ran across this week as I was getting ready for this happened in a nursing home. And uh, I was just waiting for that to land. It happened in a nursing home. There was a 62-year-old man and an 82-year-old man that were at the salad bar at this nursing home getting ready for dinner, and one of them, I can't remember which, was picking through the lettuce because they only liked one kind of lettuce, and they only wanted the kind that they liked. The other one got really mad and said, nobody's going to want to eat that after you've been picking through the lettuce. Next thing you know, they're insulting each other and throwing, you know, cursing at each other, and finally, one of these fellows throws a punch. And now you've got a 62-year-old man and an 82-year-old man in a brawl at the salad bar. And now all the other old people got to go try to break up this fight. They're a little slow. They don't make it there real fast. One of them, one of them, they're one of the guys. I can't remember a 62-year-old or 82-year-old. Their mom actually is at this nursing home as well. She gets up. She tries to break up the fight. You know you're in trouble when your 90-year-old mom has to try to break up a fight that you're in. She gets hurt, and then this other old guy sees the whole thing going on, mom's not stopping it, he's gotta go try to help, so he gets up and he tries to break it apart, and one of the original guys bites him on the arm, so that when the police come, this poor guy's bleeding. I mean, this is the kind of volatility we have in our world. One minute you're getting ready to make yourself a salad, the next minute you're doing damage with the dentures, you're just biting into somebody's, you know? The story that started all this for me, though, was something that happened in the NCAA playoffs. I am not really a basketball fan, don't hold it against me, I'm just not. But this year, I paid attention to the NCAA brackets because one of the colleges where I'm an uh, an alumnus, uh, they actually made it quite a ways. I was very excited for them, go Liberty Flames. They didn't make it all the way, but uh, maybe next year. But as I was watching this, something interesting happened. Uh, One of the teams that did very well um, had a, a social media moment with the coach. How many of you remember watching what happened with Tom Izzo and his freshman defender this year, right? I see some hands going up across the room. Tom Izzo's a good coach, um, he's got a good team, and it was, nobody, it was not a surprise to anybody that they did as well as they did in the brackets, but they had a game where freshman def- the freshman on the team made a couple of defensive mistakes, a couple big defensive mistakes, and it angered Tom Izzo and so he calls a timeout and runs onto the court. It's kind of an interesting thing. Tom's a little short dude. Everybody else very tall. He runs, on, run, runs out onto the court in his suit, and he balls up his fist, and he scowls at his player, and he starts to lunge at him. Of course, this is God's you know, funny sense of irony. There was an AP photographer like four feet away. So right in that moment when he's doing this, the AP photographer's like, click, all right, that's gonna go all over the country, right? And then some of the players on the team had to restrain Coach Izzo, from lunging at this player, and then they went into a huddle, and once again, on film, Tom Izzo lunges at this player, and the team again has to hold him back. Well, the next day, there was this huge social media argument playing out. On the one hand, there were people saying, this is not acceptable. I'm somewhat involved in the academic side of psychology and the academic world, and so some of my colleagues and people that I respect were making the point that it is never okay to to try to motivate behavior through threats and anger. By the way, I'm, I'm on that side. I, I think that you can get some short-term results out of threats and anger, but I don't think you ever get long-term results out of it, and I think what it tends to do, it tends to make people afraid of you rather than motivate people to wanna do well for you, but that's a whole other thing. We can approach that some other time. But, um, then there were also the other side of people who were going, this was perfectly okay. And what they were writing was this. They were saying, look, you don't understand sports. This is what has to happen. Coaches have to get in their players' face. It's just how it works. It's how it's always worked. And there's a reason why Izzo has done as well as he has as a coach. There's a reason that his team is where they're at. Let the guy coach, let him do what he wants to do. And I'm, I'm kind of on that side too because the players know who they're playing for. and If they wanna play for that team, well, at least they kind of know what they're getting into. But this was what bothered me. One writer that I was reading said, look, 90% of the time, Izzo and his teammates get along really, really, or his his, his players get along wonderfully. 90% of the time, they're in a great relationship. It's only that small percentage of the time when things get explosive and you can't, you you know, act like uh, that's necessarily a bad thing when so much more of the relationship is good than the bad part. And it hit me as I'm reading that, we are in a generation that has gotten so used to volatility, we're making excuses for it. And we're saying, listen, if things are okay most of the time, but people are flipping out the rest of the time, then we should still cut them a break. Well, everybody deserves a break, but my point is, why wouldn't we want to figure out why the randomness, why the craziness, why the volatility? Because I don't want to hand a world off to my kids that's as volatile as the world that we're in right now. So we're gonna talk about where does volatility come from, even within ourselves, and what can we do about it. I wanted to get a working definition for volatile, and I, I looked up on one of my favorite internet dictionaries, and I, the, 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 the Definition was so wonderful, I just decided we'll go with it. The definition is this: liable to change rapidly and unpredictably, especially for the worst. You know, like getting ready to eat a salad and ending up throwing punches, or you know, thinking that you're gonna help your daughter learn how to drive and ending up getting charged with assault and battery, or thinking that you're gonna coach your team well and ending up on the front page of the paper the next day for berating your players. Liable to change rapidly and unpredictably. Now we can make fun of those three people, but the truth is that Jonathan is liable to change rapidly and unpredictably. Ask anybody who knows me well, they'll tell you it's the truth. Why? Why does that happen? Well, my dad told me I was gonna be doing this message. He says, we're doing this series on volatility. We're gonna call it Volatile. And first week, you're gonna introduce it. And I thought, wow, this is right in my wheelhouse. I feel comfortable with that. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of pastoral life coaching, volatility is kind of part of, you know, what I'm working with there. And then, um, you know, I a graduate degree in psychology, I ought to be able to figure this out. So I started thinking about what are, what are the causes of volatility, and I came up with a few hypotheses. Some of these I even, you know, drew straight from the literature. On the one hand, we could say that maybe it's about anger. And some of you came to this series today thinking we were doing a series on anger. It's called Volatile, surely this is a series on anger. Not necessarily, because you can't have a person who's consistently angry. Well, you know, they're angry all the time, but they're not volatile. At least you know what, you, what you're gonna get with them. They're always angry, right? They're not volatile, they're just angry. A volatile person is a person, when you see them coming, you don't know whether to duck or pucker, right? Because one minute they're this way, the next minute they're that way. You know, you see this on, on Facebook or social media, you're like, I don't even know who this person is, because one minute they're this way, the next minute they're that way. One minute they love you, one minute they hate you. That's what we're talking about with Volatile. And, and so, m- but maybe part of that's about anger. And I considered that. And the second thing I thought is, maybe it's about collective anxiety. That's a big theme these days. Because our culture has become very anxious as a whole. And I think there's good reasons for that. The international scene is not exactly uh, confidence-inspiring. Things have gotten more and more politically tense in our world, things, I mean, there's just a lot of things that used to be a given that aren't a given anymore. And so, uh, yeah, I think that in general we're more anxious and the statistics bear that out. In the late 90s and early 2000s, psychopathologists used to say that we were a culture of depression. Um, Now they're starting to change and they're starting to say that maybe actually now we're a culture of anxiety. One expert says that anxiety is the common cold of the mental health industry uh, in the United States these days. Not saying that it's not a major problem, he's saying that it's that common. So yeah, maybe us being more anxious as a society has made us more volatile, that's, that's one thought. Another thought is that it might be about technology. You and I are seeing way more information on a regular basis than our grandparents or great-grandparents saw. One statistic says that that we see 32 times as much information as our great-grandparents saw on a regular basis. So we are flooded and inundated with, and a lot of it's negative, right? I mean, you think about this, when your grandparents used to read the newspaper at the beginning of the day, they saw what was happening in their community, and they also saw a little bit of what was going on in the national scene. But now, because of Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, we're reading about stuff that's going on everywhere, and every negative piece of news that happens to be bumping off the walls of the internet happens to hit our awareness. So yeah, I, I think technology might play a part in it. This is the one I was really going to go for. Maybe it's just about stress. Right? I work with people doing pastoral life coaching, and I'll ask them a question about, on a scale of one to ten, how stressed out they feel, and I'll give them a little grid for it. I'm, I'm absolutely amazed at how frequently people tell me they're an eight or higher. And I'll ask them, I'll say, how do you function? If on a scale of one to ten on stress, you're an eight or you're a nine, how do you function? And they will look back at me and they'll say, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other to be honest with you, I don't know how I'm functioning. So yeah, maybe that's a part of it. but My problem with all those explanations is, we already know about all those things, and we're working on those things. And if those things are getting better, and I think to a certain extent, most of those we are making improvements as a culture, you would think that the volatility would be getting better, but it's not. There must be some explanation that we're missing. So I go to the Bible, and I think, God, what is it that you have to tell us about volatility? Because there's something that we're missing. And when I found this passage, this explanation that the Bible gives us for volatility is so elegant and so perfect that I thought, man, how have I missed this all this time? But it's, it's beautiful. It's an elegant explanation for why we have volatility, and it's not something that we talk about very much. So the Bible doesn't say that it's about stress or that it's about anxiety. The Bible says that if you want to understand why volatility happens, it's about loyalty, loyalty. It's about loyalty. Check out what the Bible says here in James chapter 1, verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled or as volatile as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. How many of you have a stomach that does not appreciate being on a boat and being tossed back and forth on the waves, right? Okay, a lot of you. Why do we get seasick on a boat like that? Well, it's because our brain gets weirded out. It's got sensors in our inner ears that are trying to figure out how we're oriented in this world. And the problem with being on waves like that is that the sensors are getting very random information and our brain is getting really weirded out, not being able to make sense of what's happening. So what the Bible is saying is just as random as it is to be in a boat on the wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind, that's how random life is when our, when our loyalty is divided. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, and we'll talk in a minute about why that's the case. Their loyalty is divided. This is very important. The Bible's emphasizing twice. We're talking about divided loyalty and they are unstable or they're volatile in everything that they do. Why are people volatile? Well, it's because their loyalty is divided. At least that's what the Bible says. So why is loyalty so important? Why does loyalty matter and why does it affect our decisions and our choices and our thoughts? Well, the Bible kind of leads into it. The Bible says, if you need wisdom, ask God. So how does wisdom link into this? Well, it is the universal problem that all of us have. We all came into this room from different places, um, different histories, different family of origin. We've got different um, training, different backgrounds, and some of us have different faith Different places that we're at in our faith journey. Some of you, um, you came into this room. You've known God long enough that you could have quoted me the passage out of James that I just mentioned. Some of you in this room, though, you're just exploring. You're trying out. You're, you're testing out this idea of God. You're wanting to know more. You're, you're kind of new to all this. And by the way, if that's you, we're so thrilled that you're here. That's why we exist. And thank you for giving us a seat at the table and being with us this weekend. But this much I know. I know, regardless of all those different factors. Um, that might make us different, we have one thing that unites us. We have one problem in common, and that is that we need wisdom. And we learn this as human beings. We need wisdom, and we learn it because life will throw you little puzzles and little problems that are beyond your ability to just quickly come up with the right answer. And we get stuck, and we know we don't have the right answer, and we need wisdom. How how many of y'all are parents? All right, so y'all already know what I'm talking about moment you hold that baby in your arms and you recognize, you look into this baby's face and you think this is the responsibility that God has placed in my, in my hands and you realize, I don't know what I'm doing. Now, you don't tell the kid that. You say, I don't know what I'm doing. There have been other challenges that have come your way that you immediately knew. I don't know right now what to do. I don't have the right choice right off the top of my head. And we feel that vacuum where we need wisdom. It's a universal human problem. I'm trying to learn how to play chess right now. How many of you know how to play chess? All right, you know how to do something I don't know how to do. Chess is kind of like checkers, only it's designed to make you feel bad about yourself. Uh, <laughs> so I, I know how to move the pieces, right? So that's at least one thing that's, that's good on my side. But if you really wanna know how to play chess, you don't just need to know how to move the pieces, you need to know something else, it's an S word. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Strategy. You don't just have to know how to move the pieces, you have to have a strategy to understand what is it that I'm trying to accomplish on this game board and what are they gonna try to do in, rever- in, in, in answer to that. And you have to think three or four moves ahead. I play chess now as I'm trying to learn online a little bit, there's a, a site where you can play against the computer, you can play against the live opponent, and at the end of a game with a live opponent, they can score you as either being a good sport or a, good sport or a bad sport, and then you can write something about the game, you can you know, say something about the, the game that you played. So the other day I was playing a live opponent, it was over very quickly, only a few moves, and it was checkmate, and I uh, didn't win. Um, and so the comment that the other person made at the end of the game was, you're new to chess. Okay. Now how did they know that I was new to chess? Well, because it's actually not too difficult to intuit. When you're new to chess, you have a strategy for like the first 20 seconds of the game. Right? You make the first couple moves, and you know why you made those moves. Um, and then the other person throws you a curveball. They do something that kind of throws your strategy off, and from then on, you're just making random moves right? I don't, know, I don't know what to do at this point, so I guess I'm going to move the little horsey thing over here, and I'm going to move the little tower thing over here. And it's not, it's not, I'm not doing it because I know the right thing to do. I'm just doing it because I have to do something, so I do something random. Now, here's where I've made a lot of mistakes in life. I end up doing something random because I don't know or I'm not ready to do the right thing, and that's where the Bible tells us volatility happens. Volatility happens because we're doing a random thing instead of the right thing, so we need wisdom. What does wisdom tell us? Wisdom, tell us what the, wisdom tells us what the right thing is to do. The Bible says, if you need wisdom, ask God. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second. So the, the universal search for wisdom has three components. There's three questions that we ask ourselves if we're in a search for wisdom and every human being's had to deal with this. Three, three questions that you and I and everybody in this room have in common. And the first one is, what should I believe? right? We've got this new term that's circulating around, fake news, because now publishing has become something that anybody can do. Anybody can put information out there. And so now the question is, who do I believe? I mean, what, what when I read stuff, and if, maybe if you have a social media feed and you're scrolling through it, it can be very frustrating. Do I believe what this person said? If, if what they're saying is true, then that would really out make me feel outraged. But if it's not true, then it's really crummy that they would put that out there. And we're sort of scrolling through going, well, I don't really know what to believe. So we have that problem. Second problem is whom should I trust? All of us have had an experience at some point in time putting trust in somebody and being betrayed or having that person let us down, and we've learned that lesson the hard way that we need wisdom about people. Whom should I trust? And then the third thing is what path should I take or what's my next move? What should I do next? Well in order to talk about how people have tried to find wisdom, we're going to talk for a minute about sociology. We'll take a little journey over into that for just a second. Sociologists tend to divide the recent history into three time periods. I mean, any time period division is really artificial anyway, because we could divide history a bunch of different ways, but this way will help for today. Sociologists tend to talk about history in the pre-modern, modern, modern, and post-modern era. Pre-modern era was really before we started believing that we could figure everything out on our own. At the time, science was not all that advanced, there was still a lot of things that it was understood that human beings couldn't do. We just couldn't break through this barrier or that barrier. And so there was an understanding that there was another level um, that human beings couldn't couldn't break through. And so there was a sense in which in the pre-modern era, if we had these three questions, what should I believe, whom should I trust, and what path should I take, um, the answer in the pre-modern period was some form of this. It It was God, right? God, and that doesn't mean that everybody in the pre-modern era believed in the same God, or that they worshiped God the same way, or that they had the same ideas about God. It was just that in that period of time, there was a sort of cultural understanding that we didn't get here by accident, The complexity of human life was too much to explain um, from human terms, and so there had to be a higher power. There had to be something more, and so there was faith in God. So when you talk about loyalty, at least culturally, it doesn't mean that everybody felt this way, but if you look at sort of the, the overall culture, where there was loyalty when it came to trying to figure out how do I answer these questions, the culture sort of stood together on the idea that there must be a God somewhere, and what that God says is important. Right? We even see this in the founding in the founding fathers. Look at how often God is mentioned in our in the documents of the beginning of our nation. Right? Look at your dollar bill that you have that says, In God We Trust. Why did the founding fathers put in God We Trust on the dollar bill? Because they were scared to death that we would look at the dollar and say, In money we trust. So that every time we looked at our money, the founding fathers wanted us to remember that God was our source of of well-being, not our money. Right? So there was a problem though, culturally. It's always been this way. When a culture tends to recognize God's authority, there's also a couple other problems, which is, first of all, God is kind of strict. God has some rules, and not everybody loves the fact that God has some rules. Secondly, we were getting smarter as a culture. We were learning more things. And as we were starting to make some scientific breakthroughs, That idea that we couldn't figure everything out on our own started to take a little bit of a beating. Maybe we could figure out everything on our own. Maybe it was feasible. If we followed the path of science, maybe we would figure out all of the mysteries of the universe. And then at that point, then what would be the use in believing in, in God? So in the modern era, the loyalty changed and it became science, and there was a sort of implicit promise that science would answer these questions for us. Science will tell me what I should believe, science will tell me whom I should trust, and science will tell me what my next move should be, what my next path should be. If we can just do good empirical science, and by the way, nobody's as big a fan as I am of empiricism, but if we could do really good empirical science, then there's a sort of promise there that all these questions will be answered. And it was a, it was a, a wager, really at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We don't have all the answers yet, but if we keep following science long enough, we'll get all the answers. So during the modern era, now you have a divide in the culture. You see the schools and you see the communities and you see the the culture move away from God and move over to science that this is the loyalty that we have. We're no longer loyal to God, but we're loyal to science. Now there were some people that remained loyal to God, but what I want you to pay attention to at this point is you still have consistency. I'm either over here, and I'm loyal to God, and God is where I'm gonna get my wisdom from, or I'm over here, and I'm loyal to science, and science is where I'm gonna get my answer from. So regardless, at least you have consistency, at least you have stability, until now. Now we're in what's called the postmodern era. And the postmodern era is marked by skepticism of God and science. Because God turned out not to be a useful hypothesis for us, but there's skepticism about science because now, after all this time, and as wonderful as science has been and as much as we've learned, it's very clear that science is not necessarily able to answer these three questions for us the big questions that the pro- remember there was a promise science will answer these questions for us and the reason that we are now in the postmodern world is because you have a generation of which i'm a part that says science helped us but it didn't answer the big questions of life so now we live in a culture where there is no absolute truth and where the answer to these three questions is whatever whatever what should i believe whatever Your truth, my truth, their truth, whatever it is. You you believe whatever you want to. Nobody can tell you, um, nobody should ever act like your beliefs um, should be challenged. You, You believe whatever you wanna believe, right? Whom should I trust? Whoever, trust whomever you want. You're on your own life journey. You're on your own life path, right? You're on your own trip through the unicorn forest. Whatever makes you happy, right? You go for it, right? What path should I take? Well, you should listen to your heart, right? Whatever, you know, if if you're trying to figure out what's your next move, listen to your heart. I mean, that's fine. If you really wanna do that, get a stethoscope. I think you'll find it to be pretty boring. Um, But this idea of whatever, just do whatever, it's not working for us. On so many levels, it's not working for us. But as far as volatility is concerned, let's talk about what it's done. So now, um, for postmoderns, actually, we're in an era now where people are more open to God because now every explanation is on the table, every loyalty is on the table. Sure, let's leave God in there, and by the way, let's leave science in there. That sounds good. Also, let's, um, you know, let's put some other stuff down there as well. How about what feels right, right? Because sometimes you just got to do what feels right. I mean, sometimes you got to go to church, and you got to listen about God, and you got to really engage with that, and that's cool, because if, if you want to be loyal to, to God on Saturday or on Sunday, great. But then the rest of the week, if you ever just decide you want to toggle over to what feels right, then go with that. That sounds cool. Um, also, uh, how about this? How about social media, right? How, how many of us know somebody, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us know somebody who will not make a decision until they put it out there on social media to try to get a consensus from their friends, right? They have 1,400 friends and they want them all to agree on whether they should buy this truck or not, right? Listen, you're not going to get a consensus from 1,400 people, but worse, what social media has done to us, I mean, from time to time I hear a preacher preach on social media as though the computer software has created a problem for us. It's not the computer software. The problem is that in our culture, we now have an obsession with what other people think. That's what fuels social media. If we didn't have that obsession, social media would be done tomorrow. We're obsessed with what other people think of us and what we think of them, and we have an a overinflated valuation of social approval, right? So we've got that, social media. We'll check out the Facebook and the Twitter and all that stuff. And then just to add on to that, we'll just make it even more generic. What friends think, right? Some of us, it's not necessarily social media, but still, we don't want to do anything unless we feel like we can please people. Unless we can make everybody in our sphere happy, whether it's at work or whether it's in our neighborhood or whatever, we will go against our better judgment just so long as we can make everybody happy. So sometimes we're loyal to just keeping everybody on an even keel, right? And then this one I say for last because this is one Jesus talked about. It must have been really important to him. And how about money? How often do we make decisions based off of our loyalty to money? Now you say, no, Jonathan, no. Not me, right? I'm not that kind of person. I'm not one of those people who's obsessed with money and you know, making choices specific just, just because of the money. Well, what would happen if I asked your spouse? Because the truth is we do, make, we do make a lot of decisions. I make a lot of decisions based on the dollars. The Bible says that you can't serve God and money. What are, what are, what are we finding out here? Because I'll tell you what, what the Bible is saying and what our experience ought to tell us. And that is that if we don't figure out what we're loyal to, which, by the way, you know this and I know this, we could tile this entire floor now with things that people are loyal to. What happens is instead of being stable and in one spot, one minute we're worried about what our friends think, and the next minute we open up Facebook, What you know, What, what does social media have to say? And the next minute we do the bills and we're worried about the money. And the next minute we go to church on a Saturday, what does God think? And the next minute we're reading a a magazine and we're looking at what science says and the statistics and the next minute we're doing what feels right. And the problem with that is that every time we change loyalties, we change who we are. Here's what I mean by that. You ever had two friends who were really angry with each other? and you went to go talk to those friends and you decided ahead of time you were gonna be so impartial. You were gonna be the person who was smack dab in the middle of that, right? And you go and you talk to the one person and as you hear them gripe about the other person, you begin to feel your attitude shift and you begin to have your thoughts start to shift and by the time that person is done talking, you're thinking about that other person, you're thinking, what a jerk, you know? So then you go over and talk to the other person. You don't really want to because now you think they're a jerk. But you go over here and you talk to them and you're all set to the, you know, I've got to represent for them. And and then as they're talking, you start to feel your attitude and your emotions and your thoughts shifting. Now you're getting more and more upset at the person you talked to a minute ago and now you're going, what a jerk, you know? Now it is feasible that they're both jerks. So we don't want to ignore that hypothesis. My point though is, Whatever you happen to be loyal to in the moment owns your thoughts, your emotions, your behavior. It really owns who you become in that moment. So why are we volatile? It's because we are owned by so many different things and we're toggling from thing to thing and as a result we become liable to change rapidly and unpredictably. And it's not so much that we change, it's that our loyalties change. We become liable to change loyalties rapidly and unpredictably, especially For the worst, the Bible says their loyalty is divided, and it's because their loyalty is divided that they are volatile, they are unstable in everything that they do. So now, what I wanna do in the few minutes that we have left is I wanna propose something to you that's radical. It's crazy. It's so different than anything that you're used to and the people that are around you and the world that you see on a regular basis. But there is a Bible solution for working through the volatility in our life, but it's radical. Here you go, here here it is. If we wanna reduce the volatility in our life, we've gotta choose one loyalty. It's very straightforward in the Bible. If we we wanna reduce the volatility in our life, and if we're a Christian, what that means is that we should take the God tile and say, you know what? This is where I am. If we really want to follow God, because this is what it means to follow God. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ, is to say I'm putting all my weight on God. I'm putting my loyalty on God. And as a result of that, it impacts my thoughts and my beliefs and my attitudes and my character. And I'm not going to go back and forth all the time. It doesn't mean that these things don't impact my life. It means that if you want to know where my loyalty is, my loyalty is right here. Now, you say, Jonathan, are you coming up with that on your own, or is this really a biblical principle? Oh, it's so biblical, and let me show you. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Do not depend, or in this case, the word depend actually has the connotation of lean. Don't lean on your own understanding. So what it's saying is if you're going to put your weight on something, put all your weight on God and don't try to lean away from that because if you do, it's going to make things difficult for you. And then it continues on, seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Well, I've told you before, I'm not a Bible language scholar. I wish I was. It's wonderful to, to have that skill and ability, but I love to read the work of Bible scholars who talk to us about what the color within the biblical language is because the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So, um, the Where we see, seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. One scholar that I read this week, and I thought this was a really interesting insight, he said that this part that gets rendered, he will show you which path to take, means he will straighten you out. He will will adjust your attitude. He will adjust your direction, and he will get you where you need to go. And I don't know why, but as I was reading that, I was thinking about something called a talk-down Landing. Have you ever heard of this? Talk down landing? It's what you do when the pilot is incapacitated and somebody in an airplane who's a novice who's never flown an airplane before has to sit in the cockpit and put on the earphones and talk through the radio and they have to be talked down into a landing from where they are. Fortunately, this hasn't happened on a commercial flight yet, because you usually have some redundancy there. You have a pilot and a co-pilot, so if something happens to the pilot, uh, you have someone else there who can fly the plane. But in private, um, uh, private flights, this has happened quite a few times. And I read a couple of transcripts of radio uh, operators talking somebody down, and I even listened to an audio recording of that this week. I thought it was just fascinating. But what you generally have in these recordings is you have somebody who's frantic, who, you know, they have to be calmed down, and then the person on the radio has to to give them instructions. And what they will almost always say, you'll have this experienced pilot who comes over the radio who says, listen, you're gonna be fine, just do exactly, what, what do you think the next thing they say is? Do exactly what I tell you to do, right? Now, is the pilot saying do exactly what I tell you to do because they're arrogant and narcissistic and on a power trip? No. Pilot's saying that because he knows how to land the plane, and the person behind the controls does not, right? So why does God ask us to put all our weight on him? Because he knows how to fly the plane, and we do not, right? I recognize this in my own life. You know, I was born, so I took off. It didn't require much effort from me. Uh, my mom actually probably put quite a bit of effort into it, but um, so the takeoff wasn't so bad. You know, and then I even, it was almost like flying on autopilot for a little while, right? I, m- I remember listening to an audio recording this week where a young lady was behind the controls of a plane because her father had passed out. He became hypoxic. They were flying too high. There was a, there was a, a uh, pressure change in the cabin. And so she's still conscious, she's talking to, the, to this person through the radio, and the guy says, look, you're too high, we've got to get you to a lower altitude, and then your dad will regain consciousness, it'll be okay. He said, but the problem is you're in autopilot, so we've got to get you out of autopilot. So he's like, you're going to have to nudge the plane out of autopilot and fly it on your own. Well, that was kind of anxiety-provoking for this young lady, but as I heard that, I thought, man, that is so what life is like. I took off fine. That wasn't too hard. I spent part of my life, felt like I was in autopilot, and then we had children, and it was like God said, all right, now we're going to have to nudge that out of autopilot, and you're really going to have to fly the plane, you know? See, this is why we know we need wisdom, because we're at a high altitude. We understand that our life is high stakes. It's high stakes to raise children in this world. It's high stakes to try to be a husband of honor, a wife of of honor. It's a a tough deal to live a life of character in the world that we're in today. It's high stakes and we recognize that we don't have all the knowledge that we need to make right choices instead of random choices and God comes alongside and says, yeah, but if you'll put all your weight on me, I will make sure that your attitude is adjusted and your direction is adjusted and I will give you step-by-step instructions so you can land this plane. That's what it means to not be volatile. It means to choose where your loyalty is gonna be. I was reading, as I said, looking for illustrations and stories this week, and I ran across one that just really gripped me. It was a story about Billy Graham, and uh, if you know about Billy Graham and about his amazing life, you know that he's impacted our culture for Christ in, in an immense way. His entire life he did, but it almost didn't happen. As a young man, he was really struggling a bit with his faith. He, uh, he'd started doing crusades, which he would eventually be famous for, but in the beginning some of them worked and a couple of them, he, in his own words, were a flop. And then he said, you know, it, it was, he was just going through his own faith journey. He had a friend by the last name of Templeton who had been another preacher, another colleague uh, of his that had become a skeptic and had walked away from the faith and was now trying to convince Billy Graham to walk away from the faith. Meanwhile, Billy Graham had been hired on as the president of a college, and the college wanted to become accredited, and if they were going to become accredited, they needed him to get his PhD, so they wanted to help him get his PhD, but in order to do that, he'd have to quit doing the evangelist thing. So now he's stuck kind of in a tough spot. Either he needs to walk away from being an evangelist and become an academic and get his PhD, or he needs to walk away from the college, which was his stability in his life, and go into the instability of being an evangelist. It was a tough call. Meanwhile, he was really struggling with some of the faith questions that his friend Templeton was bringing up, and he ended up being asked by Henrietta Mears to speak at a family camp. Uh, It's really not usually his gig, but he decided he would go do it. It was sort of in this woodsy retreat area. He thought it might be good for him to go and do this. So the night before he was supposed to get up and speak, he took a walk out into the woods with his Bible, and he said to himself, man, if I'm going to get up and preach tomorrow night, I've got to get this settled. I have to get this settled. Here's a guy who's struggling with all these different loyalties, and he's saying, i got to pick one loyalty. He walks out into that wooded area. There's a stump there, and he opens his Bible, and he sets his Bible on that stump. It's really more of an altar at this point than a stump. And he says to God, you know, God, I don't understand everything about this book. And also, I don't understand everything about the universe. There are questions that I don't have answers to. There are puzzles in life that I won't be able to solve. But I'm making a choice. Because no matter what I choose to believe is gonna take faith. It's gonna take faith for me to be a skeptic, it's gonna take faith for me to be a follower. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm making a choice to follow you, God. I'm gonna say that this, I trust that your word is what you say it is. I trust that you are who you say you are and I'm putting my full weight on this for the rest of my life. The next night he got up and spoke at that Camp and 400 people made a decision for Jesus Christ when he spoke there. And people walked out saying that he spoke with an authority they'd never heard him speak with before. Well, if you know Billy Graham, if you're familiar with him, the passion and authority with which he spoke, that was his trademark. That's what we all remember him for. But it wasn't because that's just the way that he spoke. It wasn't just because that was his delivery style. I kind of always thought it was. But you know, now I kind of think it's not just a style of delivery. It is the passion that comes from standing on one tile and saying, God is the person to whom I'm loyal. At that moment, it's amazing how much passion we can have in life for doing the right thing and doing what God's called us to do. My challenge to you and to Jonathan Hoover this morning is, let's pick one loyalty, shall we? Let's, let's pick one loyalty. And let's stand on the promises of God. And let's choose, as a, as a group of people, imagine what a room this size could do in this world if we would say, yeah, maybe these things impact my life, but those things aren't my loyalty, my loyalty is to God. Imagine what we could do, just the people in this room. If we would say, I'm choosing one loyalty, it's the God who created me, and the Savior who's given me a second chance at life, and I'm gonna live that way. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love, and for the redemption that you've brought into our lives. Help us to remember that being loyal to you doesn't just mean that we have a relationship with you, but it also means that we have a loving pilot that's guiding us in, giving us directions, so that we can live life making right choices and not random ones. Help us to reduce the volatility in our life by choosing to follow you, Heads are still bowed, eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you'd say, Jonathan, I really want to have a connection with this God you're talking about, but it's new stuff for me, but I really do. I want to do that today. I want to put my loyalty all on God. If you want to do that, I want to help you right now. I want to give you the words to a prayer that you can pray if you want. You don't have to do this out loud. You could do this silently in your head if you want, but if you do, God will hear you and it will be settled. Are you ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died and rose again for me. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus, in your name. All right, look this way just for a minute. Everybody look this way. If you just prayed that prayer, would you do me a personal favor? Would you take that card that's in the seat right in front of you that says talk to us, check the box that says I prayed to receive Christ, take it back to guest services. They have a gift they wanna give you to help you get started in your journey with God. Thanks for being here this week. Next week we continue on with Volatile.